Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I've got another great Disrupting Japan Select show this week, and this show, well, this is one of the conversations that has really stuck with me over the years. In fact, if you're interested in selling to large Japanese enterprises, then this might well be the most insightful conversation that's ever happened on the topic in English. Over the course of a decade, Sridham Venkatariam grew Infosys Japan from one employee to well over a thousand before retiring to work with startups. In this episode, we cover why so many foreign companies have trouble selling to Japanese enterprise. And the one critical thing you really need to do if you have any hope of building long term business here. And afterwards, I've got an update for you. I caught up with Sriram the other day, and I mentioned that the recent popularity of SaaS products seems to contradict some of the advice he's about to give. But actually, it turns out it doesn't. The successful SaaS companies are playing by very similar rules to those we outline in our conversation. And I'll give you that update at the end of the episode. So please enjoy the show. Today we've got some amazingly good advice for anyone who wants to sell services in Japan. Selling products or software is challenging enough, but selling services where relationships mean everything. And where the quality expectations for service is perhaps the highest in the world, well, that provides a host of very special challenges. Today we sit down with Shiram Venkatariman as he explains how he managed to scale Infosys, which provides outsourced Indian development services, from two people to over a thousand people in Japan. In a very real sense, he did it with a strategy that is pretty much the opposite of what you would expect from an Indian software services company. This is a real insight into the mind and the buying decisions of Japanese enterprise customers, and Shiram has a different and very compelling perspective on why so many foreign companies have trouble gaining real trust in the Japanese market. We talk a lot about finding the right people here in Japan. And how to avoid the hiring traps that Western firms commonly fall into. Really, this interview is basically a blueprint of how to grow from nothing to a thousand people in Japan. But you know, Shiram explains that much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. I'm sitting here with Sriram Venkatariman of Infosys. And you've been with Infosys from the very beginning in Japan. and... You've seen it grown from a, from a tiny team to over 10,000 employees here now, haven't you? No, no not 10,000. No? Okay, that was on the website. So our total Japan business is probably about 1,000 people today.、Uh, but given the business model, not all of them are here. Roughly 65 to 70% of the teams are in India, and the balance are here. Okay, let's actually back up a bit to 20 years ago. The Japanese market is obviously a very big one, but system integration is always a really local game. So, what attracted both you and Infosys to the Japanese market in the first place? So, Infosys was founded by seven people. 
the senior founder, Mr. Narayana Murthy, I think he is a true visionary. So one of the de-risking dimensions for Infosys was how do we move away from a large dependence on the market of United States? Because our business has been, it's dependent quite heavily on mobility of people, ideas. If you're dependent only on one market, if there is a regulatory change or if there is something else that happens, then you're not going to be able to sustain the predictions that you make. Okay. And back then, I mean, what percentage of the revenues were coming from the U.S.? The year I joined, this company had a global revenue of $26 million. I was, I think, sales employee number 10. But that really was, so this was 96? Six and 97. So this was at the very start of this global outsourcing growth. Absolutely. And at that time, we were at, what, 78% of our revenues or something like that was from the U.S. We had just started Europe a couple of years ago, and we had just started some stuff. And next extension was to figure out Asia. Japan, obviously, was of interest, just given the GDP size. And the company tried to do some experimentation through some remote sales, if you will. People came with it. Then they realized that it's important to have somebody here. Mm. And that was in 96. Through a strange set of circumstances, I got introduced to this company. What, what, <laughs> how strange? What were the, is this something you want so, to talk about? Yeah, I can, I can discuss. Right. So I was doing very well in another Indian company. And I had been there for almost six years. And I was responsible for new product development and new businesses. We were developing the computer peripheral business in India. And as you know, India deregulated in 91, and then the economy really started picking up. I think IT is the only industry where India has always kept pace with the global level. Every other industry we've started from behind. Uh, I, I think it was just a perfect timing that when India decided to open up, computing was also getting democratized thanks to the PC and stuff like that. So my job was to manage our technical partner who was out of Japan. And I visited Japan a couple of times. And when I came to Japan, one of the things that really struck me was, how is it that a country which lost everything in two wars come up like this in 50 years? Very quickly, yeah. It is not that Indians on an average lack any intellect. All of us also work very hard. What is it that makes this country so successful that we are not able to duplicate in India? I've got to ask, did you manage to figure that out? Yes and no. A lot of it is to do with how well they have worked with the cultural context that they have. And the notion of common good being more important than a private good, I think drives this place pretty well. Economically speaking, I think MITI did a brilliant job of figuring out what is this country's identity going to be from an economic sense? They went from shipbuilding, steel, automobiles, electronics, semiconductors, and so on. But all of it, I think, was a very carefully planned, orchestrated resource allocation, managing domestic industry in such a way that there is limited competition, which is incentive enough for everybody to stay competitive, 
but at the same time, not so unlimited that you know nobody's making money. Well, and they were they're highly competitive in the global markets. Right, and they would go together as Japan Inc. It worked incredibly well until about 1990 or so. So when I was doing the Sprinter business, obviously we had a relationship with one of the Japanese companies, and there was this other Japanese company which had something very interesting. And it is almost sacrilegious to think that、uh, you would even talk to the other company. But I went and did, just to explore,、uh, because the technology was changing and the other company was a little ahead in the new stuff. But before I knew. The other guys knew that I had met these guys. Right. It's, and it was not from our side. The relationships in Japan are so important. And actually, let's let's dig into this because I think what Infosys was selling these relationships and the services, it's fundamentally different from coming into Japan and trying to sell hardware or consumer brands or、uh, enterprise software. When you first came to Japan, how big was the team, and what did your first deal? Yeah, yeah look before、like? that, let me just finish the movie story. Okay. So I was doing very well, and because India had deregulated, a whole bunch of multinationals were coming in. One of my customers actually left his job and started a headhunting firm, and this guy would call me every day, saying, "You know, this company wants somebody, that company wants somebody." And I kept on telling no to this guy. And、uh, one day he called me. He said, "Look." Then he said, "What do you want to do?" And I thought I'll get him off my back by saying, I, "The next thing I want to do is I want to work overseas and in Japan only." Thinking that this guy will never call me. Next morning at six thirty, he calls me. He said, "Infosys is looking to do something in Japan. You promise me, so you'll go and meet these people." I said, "Yeah, promise is a promise. I'll go and meet these people." And you know, usually people say you should never change your job, your city, and home at the same time. And I did all of that. And I also changed the industry. I had no idea about what software business was, but I just had this foolish energy in me, which said, "How bad can it be? How hard can it be?" I think, in some ways, coming to Japan with no preconceived notions at all might be an advantage. Yeah. Then I joined the company. Then I was told that、uh, you please learn Japanese in India before you go. Then I started learning, and I had two tutors: one in the morning and one in the afternoon, evening. You know, intense classroom for three months, and then finally, somehow, I managed to convince these guys to call my boss and say that this guy is okay. Beyond this, he won't improve in India.、Uh, you please send him to Japan. Then I came here. I landed at Narita. Heard the train announcements. I realized I can't understand anything. <laughs> But then, by then, I had already come with one suitcase and a bag. So you've got to make it work. So I had to make it work. We had one more guy here, and that goes back to the how we tried to enter the market. So I was running the independent Infosys operation. Then we also said there was an opportunity created by the famous consultant Omae Kenichi. He wanted to bring India and Japan together. So he created a company with four Indian companies as investors. And some Japanese investors called Jastic Park. So it's just this consortium of yeah. But it was they created an entity. They hired people. So our management decided to do that as well. So at one point in time, we had two operations: my operations, independent Infosys operations, and this. Were there cases you were kind of bidding against each other? You were after the same business? No, I, I always kept track of that and.、Uh, The market was so big, and I, there was enough for us to do our own ways. 
the first six months was very hard. I think that's the only time I've cried as an adult as to what the hell have I got myself into. I didn't know anybody here. I didn't speak the language. But fortunately for me, uh, that year, December, I closed three deals. What kind of deals were they? One was, thanks to my previous, the company that I used to partner with, they had a software business. So I went to them and I said, I already worked with your company in a different capacity. Can you please introduce me to somebody who's doing this? And through that, I, and we were lucky to find the right set of people and they needed something. And uh, that was in the embedded software space. The, but the first one I got was from a large manufacturing company, which was deploying ERP at that time. In 97, ERP had just come in. And they were trying to deploy ERP to their global subsidiaries. Was it a Japanese client? Was it a Yeah, it's a complete. Client? I thought it would be easier to do business with multinational. So I actually looked at our existing multinational customers who had business here in Japan. But I quickly found out two things. One, a lot of them probably did not have enough local decision-making to drive some of this. So the IT decisions were made in New York or San Francisco or London. And, you know, our business has always been about you work with one customer for very long, very deep, and very wide. Proactively, I really wanted to go out to the Japanese companies. Uh, Because one thing I felt was it may be worth the effort to create a long-term sustained relationship with the parent organization of a Japanese company. Well, absolutely. I think your experience here, and I, I really want to dig down on and I know it was a long time ago, but Japanese companies tend to be very relationship-based, even when you're selling products. When you're selling services, I think it's even more so, and the Japanese systems integrators have a very tight grip on their customers. The Japanese enterprises will defer to their system integrators for technology decisions. What you're describing, making it sound like just going on sales calls and pounding the pavement, is incredibly difficult to do. So how did you forge those relationships? How did you get Japanese enterprises to consider you guys and shift away from their existing vendors? Part of it was on the pavement. I think there was no substitute to that because we had no existing relationship. So I would pick up the phone and call. You know, I've actually done telephone cold calling. Through that process, I realized a few things work well. So if you tell a company A in a certain industry here that you are working with their global competitor, there is an immediate interest to know what is it that we're doing for the other guy. Okay. So that was a very good hook I discovered very early. The second thing was Japan was also looking at India in a very strategic sense in terms of what should we do with India. So there used to be a number of visitors to India trying to figure out what India is. And one great thing our founders realized very early in the life of the company, and India had still an image of a very impoverished, dirty, no infrastructure country, crowded. He said, look, no, then customers are not going to come. We will have a world-class facility. I don't think anything compares with what Infosys has built. So when the Japanese potential customers would come and visit, they'd be blown away. There's nothing like this in Japan. Right. And that was a very good way for me to get people to visit us. The other thing that I, I think that was a good thing 
in hindsight, I always made sure that the senior people of our company, including the founders, got an opportunity to visit Japan on some pretext or the other. Part of it is for my own selfish interest, because it is important for me to convey what this place is. And no matter how you explain, unless they come here and see for themselves, I don't think they really understand how different this place can be. That allowed me to connect with companies at a very senior level because I'm bringing my global CEO. Right. No, it's, a, it's having the global CEO visit, is, it opens doors. Right. And I think I leverage that very extensively. Uh, I used to make sure that at least there are three or four senior level visits to this country one way or the other. And I think that really helped. The second thing that helped, uh, though it was not by design initially, uh, to go back to your point about these Japanese local system integrators having a tight grip, I realized that I have to find a hole in that. And that was always for us new technology that is still not coming to Japan. And ERP was exactly that in 97. Now that's really interesting to me because in the Japanese market, well in the US market too, outsourcing to India has the image of being the low-cost competitor. People do it to save money. But your value proposition for the Japanese companies wasn't cost savings. It was unique expertise. It was also cost savings at that time. And that was an easier sell. But a success of a company by proxy is reflected in how profitable that company is. So for us, the combination of a lower cost and new technology expertise actually allowed us to command significant premium. And we made fairly good money. You know, one thing that I'm very proud of, except the first year when I was just starting off, we have always made nearly company average or more here. So when you were getting started, how long did it take you to make those first deals? How long were you pounding pavement and so doing April I came, I signed the deal on December 3rd or 5th or something like that. That's not Which bad. is actually, uh, in hindsight, pretty, pretty solid. But because of those first two or three which we did right, I think it gave us a lot of confidence that it can be done. And it can be done on our terms. And so the initial deals, were they subcontracting through large Japanese oh, that, SIs or direct? No, no. I had a religious belief that I will not do subcontracting. So, oh. Because if I'm anyway going to work very hard, I'm going to work, work hard for my brand. In the early days, I was told that, can you please use some Japanese advisors? So I met a few of them. And I remember a conversation I had with this gentleman. He said, look, you cannot do this alone, directly. I said, why? He said, no, you guys don't know Japanese way. You guys don't know Japanese, this, that, and the other. I said, so how will you help me? He said, no, I know all these people. I can introduce you. And I said, what will you convey about us to the prospect? He'll say, I'll say, these guys are from India, they'll do it for cheaper. I said, no, just stop. This is exactly why I don't want people like you. He said, no, no, but you can never succeed. And like I said earlier, you know, I was incredibly foolish, I guess. I told him, no, one of my inspirations to do in business in Japan is this photograph in Akio Morita's book where he's leaving Haneda to go to the U.S. And Morita didn't speak a word of English. Similar situation you were in. So I said, look, you know, it is Sony. Sony still gets premium. And in my mind, 
I think we are Sony on the software services. So we're going to try this, and if it fails, it fails. And Morita coming into the U.S. had exactly the same strategy. He had many opportunities right. to subcontract and to produce for other suppliers, Correct. and he refused. Correct. So I said, if he can do it, why can't I do it? Uh, I think it was incredibly uh, irrationally stupid, I guess. But I think it was some kind of a courage. It seems to have worked out for the both of you. Right. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think one lesson I have learned in building a business, you have to do it for the right reasons. Money is actually one important dimension, but it is not the only dimension. I think you build a company because there are employees dependent on the company, there are customers dependent on the company, you're doing something useful. Why would you sell yourself cheap? Well, it makes a lot of sense. If you're selling yourself as a low-cost producer, there's always somebody that can deliver it a little bit. There is no cost. end to it. Yeah. You know, people used to, customers used to push me, saying you guys are very expensive, other Indian companies are this, that. I said, please work with them, it's all right. You have to do what is right by your logic. And there are times I have actually turned down deals, saying we can't do it. But the deals you were turning down, was it because of uh, the cost or that you didn't feel like you could deliver the quality in that area? No, because we, were, we wouldn't make money. Okay. You know, quality was always a difficult exercise here. It continues to be difficult because I think the Japanese sense of quality is quite different. How is the Japanese perception of quality different than it is in, say, the U.S.? I think there are two or three important differences. I think one is Japan will not compromise completion for speed. I mean, you have to hit the deadline. And you have to complete it. You cannot do a 90%, but... 110% faster. There's no value to that in this country. Whereas American sense of competitiveness is if I can do it faster, even if it is not completely complete, it is still okay because I want to be first in the market. The Japanese mindset is very hard to understand for people from outside. That's one. The second is the process of getting to that is also a dimension of quality. So for example, Let's say you have two airlines. They both take you from point A to point B. But there is one airline which is super late out to travel in. But both take you from point A to point B. And both use the same type of plane. So if you go from here to Singapore, it takes you seven hours. It doesn't matter whether you fly airline A or airline B because that's what it takes because of the plane. But yet, there is one airline which does a tremendous job of customer service. You can't say, no, no, I'm all functional. As long as it takes me from point A to point B, I don't care. I'll choose the lowest. I don't think that's the case here. So many Western companies are interested in the result, in what you deliver, but the Japanese companies also care very much about the process. Correct. Right. A, a good example of that is, let's say you messed up. They expect a process which will help them understand what have we done to figure out the real root cause of why this mess has happened. They're actually not so worried about fixing that mess. That fixing the mess is anyway your job. The expectation is, do you know why it has happened? Do you know what you're going to do to ensure that it does not happen again? What is the mechanism you're going to put in place to make sure that you're going to observe this for whatever length of time? before it is internalized in the system. Coming from outside, you say, what's wrong with these people? I fixed it, right? Just get on in life, man. Stuff happens. Yeah, doesn't that slow down the project overall? It may, may not. 
but i think the perception of quality is also built on these kind of experiences you know one thing i keep telling my people till you sell you're on infosys side once you've sold you're on customer side what do you mean because till i'm selling i'm obviously i'm representing infosys so i have to do the right thing for the company but after that i have to do the right thing for the customer i am the customer's advocate in this side i think that is the fundamental of building a long term relationship with the customer they have to have this confidence that if i call this guy he will do something for me and it is very personal isn't it yes it is but it is also a company to company thing for example in japan they have organization changes every 3 years right people get rotated out of positions all right so even though it is personal just because that guy has moved out this customer is not going to wait for another 3 years to build a new relationship with the new guy but that's a company to company thing the expectation is you can have your org change we don't have issues but we expect you to have a process in your organization which makes sure that there is no knowledge loss when this guy comes in because i'm not going to start from zero again you know this actually explains why the large japanese clients don't have a lot of technical expertise they really rely on their vendors to maintain that institutional knowledge at least yeah, i don't know whether that's a good thing uh, you know in my opinion japan has actually probably lost out because of that model i i don't think it's a, a good thing but it's it's an important thing to understand if you're trying to sell services sure, sure. I, i you're absolutely right you're absolutely right you know in 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 the early years people would ask me how long are you here how long have you been here i could really not understand the real meaning of that question then i figured out they are very worried if i start something with this fellow and if his contract is for 3 years and if he's going to go home 6 months from now do i even start well another thing that that i've realized over the years in japan and i'm sure became obvious to you very quickly is that in the standard western model is when the salesman closes a deal he hands off the project to the project leader who hands off the project but in japan that point of contact the salesman themselves the main point of interaction will be japanese clients expect you to be responsible personally for how the absolutely. whole thing is going yeah absolutely i i i think that is the right way to do it japan obviously expects it but i i find this notion that somebody sells and then somebody else is responsible very weird actually i do too but i think it's maybe because we've just been here so long but india also is the same thing but india also i think as you come more east and east a lot of this is an implicit expectation you know i have these debates in the company and they're saying look why are you guys spending so much time on delivery related stuff i said no he's my customer my friend i have to or he won't stay my customer right those close relationships either between individuals or between companies both really are very important but how do you scale that so you you started in the market you had your your beachhead if you will doing erp systems that got you in the door you delivered the results you started building relationships and you how do you build from that and get the right people that can carry on oh, that culture i think that's been the toughest challenge the strength of the business model allowed us to scale in the back end in india if we wanted to hire 20000 people a year we could do it but then when it comes to japan 
And because our business process is such that everything is tied at the hip to India. So there is no separation of layer which says that this you do only in Japan and this you do only in India. Right from the time you source the deal to the time you finish delivering to the customer, people in India are always connected to the deal. And that's the reason why the offshore model has been very successful because I think the Indian companies figured out how to execute that. But when you do that in a multilingual scenario, because guys in India don't speak Japanese, it's a very hard challenge. And what happens is then the front part actually becomes in the true sense a bottleneck because this is very hard to scale. So I'm going to interrupt you just for a second because I, I want to clarify one thing here. So culturally, India and Japan are very different. Did you try to train the Indian engineers in Japan in what the Japanese customers expected, or did you and your team here in Japan kind of act as that interface to kind of, as sort of cultural translators, as it were, to manage the expectations on both sides? It was actually a bit of both. So in the first four years, I, I did not do too much because there was business to deliver and we were fighting, struggling, this, that. But after understanding this for some time, in that period I realized, this is not scalable. Then we did two things. We did what we called as immersion program and reverse immersion program. I hired a bunch of reasonably experienced Japanese folks, sent them to India for a year. A year? Yeah. It could be anywhere within six months to a year. I said, you guys just go there. You work as a part of that team. Because you have to understand the ethos of this company, the ethos of the other set of people who work with you. You have to know what are their constraints. You have to understand what is important to them. I think that was a very, very good investment. Even today, a whole bunch of those people form the core of the business here. So they're still here 20 years later. Yeah, 15 years. I started that fourth year or fifth year into the company. The standard way of doing things is you send people to headquarters for like a two-week training course. But what do these people pick up in those six months to a year that, I mean, something stuck with them, obviously. Yeah, one thing I think people learned was to appreciate the bunch of constraints that drive the other people. For, I'll give you a simple example. Let's say somebody, there's some trouble here at nine in the morning. India is three and a half hours behind. That's 5.30 a.m. If somebody has come to work at 5.30 a.m. in India, it's not an easy job. But they could see all of that and perceive. So when they come back and talk to the customer, and customer says, 9 o'clock, I expect somebody, they know what the issue on the other side is. And this, I'm, I'm giving a very trivial example. But these things mathematically explain, you know, if they're just sitting here, they won't get it. No, these little things add up. Right. Second thing is, I think they have learned what is the value of a disciplined process of software development. How do you intelligently break down a large project into small pieces and make sure that it is done in the same manner, independent of who is on the team? Were your processes considered a competitive advantage here? Do Japanese systems integrators also have these rigorous processes? They do have, but I think there are 
fundamental difference is ours is geographically distributed so the process has to take care of that mm. it also leverages time zone differences to advantage so for example if i throw the ball at something to india when they open then by the time i come back tomorrow morning it is actually substantially long number of hours but the japanese have taken i think a slightly different cut on how they do the development piece we have always believed that it is very hard to separate upstream and downstream in a software project you can't have one bunch of people talking to the customer who think they understand what the customer wants and a completely different bunch of people building stuff but at a at a high level that seems like what infosys is doing you're collecting requirements and building the high level relationships here in tokyo and the execution is being done in india well that's oversimplified all our processes are tied to hip with folks in india some of the relationship building is also with folks from india so when we say for example go meet a customer to understand what they want we will actually have flying people from india to sit with us they may not understand a word of japanese <laughs> but but they're in the same room but it's important yeah yes it is it is very very important then these guys go back and they form the core of the team that is actually doing the execution piece that you talked about so it's not like two separate bubbles which are connected by a telephone line and that's why i think duplicating services model is quite hard because if you're doing a product you can actually do this two separate bubbles connected by a wire kind of a thing but services because the value is perceived delivered at the point of contact with the two sets of people it is very very hard to be able to deliver value if you don't understand the cultural nuance the perception of quality the perception of value being different and so on and so well, forth well it's so much uh, quality is a, a much more vague concept for services with a piece of hardware that's manufactured in china or japan it's you spec it out and that's what it is but services yeah, but this is a, this is vague. a series of moments of truth so i did the reverse also i got bright young indian engineers to spend 6 months in japan to learn japanese so we went to a, a japanese school we we worked a special curriculum we said the goal is not for them to go and order a beer in a restaurant so we programmed that content in such a way that it is actually completely related to the business we do and those are the folks who are still in the core on the other side still even after all these years even after all these years well it sounds like you built a pretty amazing team if you're having i mean this this core team to stay with with you with each other for 15 years yeah because i think one good thing that the company did was i was always here and i think it makes a lot of difference when they know that there is going to be a reasonable amount of certainty in terms of the leadership Sure. That's why it is very nervous for Japanese companies to work with foreign companies when they know that the CEO is going to change every 3 years. Right. And every new person comes with his own set of beliefs, his own set of experiences. Well, I think I've been the longest serving in any Indian company here. 20 years is a long time. So were these programs something you undertook proactively or was there a case of a like a bad misunderstanding where you've decided like no I've got to get ahead of this and prevent this from happening again we realized that we can't scale the business we also realized that 
you need a solid bunch of core people who can then propagate a similar thing to the next set of people. So we did, what, five, six programs like that, and we trained a whole bunch of people. Some of them left, but fortunately, that was very few. Most of them are still here. But what I have found hardest here is to get, quote unquote, ready-made people who will fit. Is the problem finding people who are a cultural fit or finding the skill sets you need? Both. Both. You know, first of all, this is not a very highly mobile labor market. Secondly, and I think this is the lesson I have learned by making so many mistakes, hiring mistakes, if you will. I think the normal tendency is for us to hire somebody who looks and talks like us because we are comfortable with that. Yeah, we people want to hire people who are like them. People want to buy from people who are like them. It's human nature. But that can be a big mistake. Just because a guy speaks fluent Japanese does not make him good at the job. Same way, just because a Japanese speaks good English does not make him good at the job. But I think the selection processes are not geared to calibrate this piece very well. For example, let's say I'm interviewing a Japanese candidate in English. He's obviously going to struggle. But am I going to make that extra effort to still understand what he's trying to answer? Or am I going to judge him based on the fact that, that communication is so painful? Recruiting the right staff is something all foreign companies in Japan struggle with. So is there any specific advice you have for other country managers who are trying to build the right team here? I have made so many mistakes that I can write a book called How Not to Do Business Here. So I don't know if I have a solution. But I would think that they should take time and effort to engage with candidates for sufficient length of time. You cannot judge a guy based on three conversations you've had, out of which two are on phone calls or a video call. I don't think the foreign companies are investing enough in that process. For example, we don't send a prospective CEO candidate or a country manager to the home country and say you spend one week with multiple people because we think it is too expensive, it is so elaborate. And the thing I've learned is I think it costs you three years a wrong choice. It takes you a year to find out that it's a wrong choice. It takes one year to figure out if there's an opportunity to fix it. And it takes one year to actually get it corrected one way or the other. So it makes sense to take the time to get the right person. Number one. Number two, I think it is also important to have a honest conversation. There is no point in each other, each side, trying to oversell to each other. There's no point in me saying I'm a great company without telling him the dirty thing, because once he comes in anyway, he's going to find out the dirty thing. So I've tried so many experiments. I tried hiring Japanese who were raised outside Japan. That had a different problem. Customers would very quickly find out that this guy did not grow up here. Ah, uh, so he didn't know the proper business protocols. Right. And, right. And we foreigners can get away with making these mistakes, but right. Japanese cannot. Right. Then I tried hiring fresh graduates, and that was a complete no-go because the mothers will not allow them to join a unknown Indian company. They would rather have them go to a known Japanese company or even unknown Japanese company. <laughs> That's when we realized that we should do this, hire two-year-olds to five-year-old experienced people, bring them into our program, and over time we will create our own set of people with the DNA that 
works for our business. So it's a very, very long process, and it's not an immensely scalable process. I can understand that, that taking time, you're really investing in the future of the organization. I mean, it's obviously paid off based on the retention you have, but you have managed to scale it, and you've gone from two people to thousands of people. It's not enough. <laughs> it's never enough. Was it a gradual scale out from just getting more business with your customers and a few more customers? Or was there like a pivotal deal that really propelled you to success? No, here? I think uh, it was always for us in an organic way. Yeah. It was not that there was one pivotal deal that forced us to do something. Because I realized that this is a one year lead time process at the minimum. So if I want something next year, I got to start doing the stuff now. And that's where I think staying profitable is very important <laughs> because you can do all this. You can be unprofitable for a short period of time, but it, yeah, it's not sustainable. No, but you know, on a different dimension, I think one of the lessons I have internalized as a, as a subsidiary or as a branch of a foreign company in Japan, you should never give grief to the head office. You don't have to give them happiness, but you should never give grief to head office because then you can do all these experimentations on the side. But if you start giving grief, then people are just going to come after you well, they're going to start looking into things and right. giving you advice and that you may why, or may not want. That's why it is important to stay within the overall frame of the company in terms of whatever is important to the company. But as long as you're doing that, I think all eyes are away somewhere else. You can do the other stuff here. So we have tweaked a number of our processes to suit for Japan. For example, you know, earlier we used to write very wordy proposals. Very soon I realized that no Japanese customer is going to read this thing. We tried to make everything visual. So then we created one program here with an illustrator. We ran this program of how to convey anything visually. Because it doesn't come naturally to Indian people. We were not trained like that in school. Slowly it percolates. But it's, a, it's an organic process. But you keep doing it over a period of time, now it's, it's atarimai. You know, that's how you do it. It is those kind of small, small things that make a difference when you do the services piece. You mentioned that early on, being able to implement ERP systems, to be able to do something, be able to implement new technology that the Japanese systems integrators couldn't, was a real advantage. Is that a strategy you're still using today? Yes. Even today, a lot of our business, our entry wedge is always some, something like that. Once we get in, we can still figure out the other stuff. But I still think the entry wedge is stuff where we're completely different. Uh, otherwise, there's no reason for them to look at us. You know, why, why would somebody go through all the pain of working with a bunch of foreigners when there's an easier option available? But then you have to continuously come up with something. <laughs> well, that's the great thing about technology is it, it does right. move so quickly. Right. There's always something new. That's right. It's been a very tough journey, but it's been a very fulfilling journey. Though I don't think I met my own original goal of how big this needs to be. Well, there's still time. It's still growing. Yeah, it's still growing. I think we'll have to do something different yet again to get to the next uh, level. Looking back on it, if there was one thing you could do over or do differently, what would that be? You know, one thing I would have probably done very differently was to have figured out how to get younger Japanese people into our system early enough. I don't think we're still doing enough of that. Why is that important? Because no matter how hard you look, 
I just don't think there are enough people who are comfortable straddling two cultures and doing business. Right. I think we are kidding ourselves if we are saying that it is there. And it is not there on India side also, it's not there here also. And that's why services business are so, so hard to scale in a non-home country market, if you will. I think I should have done a lot more of what I did in very small scale. Probably I should have done that much earlier and in much larger scale. Targeting on the, the young Japanese yeah. with For two example, or three years of experience. I think we should have started a development center here in, say, a Fukuoka or a Sapporo or somewhere else, which is like the incubation piece for people. Uh, I think I could have done it at that time, but somehow I, I scaled it down because we were also doing it for the first time. Maybe I should have done more of that at that time. So you would have invested in the future sooner, the future employees correct, sooner. Correct. Because the company could afford it at that time. Uh, in today's scenario, given all the uncertainty that is in the world, it's not easy to make some long-term bet like that for anybody, I guess. Uh, the second thing I may have done differently is probably added far more salespeople than I had. <laughs> because that would have allowed you to make more sales or because it takes more salesmen to close a deal in Japan? No, I think... I think you just need more coverage. I think you, we, are, we are still very under-penetrated and under-represented, considering the potential. But the people who in my sales team, my other teams, a whole bunch of them have worked here with me for 10, 15 years. So that way I think I'm quite happy that we've created a good core group which has done this together for so long. It is very unusual to have that, that core team together for so long especially on two continents like that. I guess we just got lucky. <laughs> and I think you did something right. Hey, listen, be before we wrap up, let me ask you, what would be the most important advice you could give to a new CEO country manager coming into Japan trying to sell services? I think first and foremost, they have to make a sincere effort to understand what is the definition of value as seen by the customer? I think the concept of value here is very, very different. Before you mentioned that a lot of the perceived value is in the process, is there, there anything else you can dig into on that? So I'll give you an example. Let's say you develop something. If you do a transaction with the customer which goes on the following lines, I will deliver it faster, but you have to pay me more. Customer will say, actually, I don't want it faster because this is only one small piece of something else that I'm trying to do. Even if you deliver this piece faster, I don't have the bandwidth to train my people on this until this point in time. So I actually don't want it faster. It would be inconvenient. Correct. They just want it exactly when they want it. Correct. If you don't understand that the value of the delivery is around some other pieces that he or she needs to move, I think you will end up antagonizing the customer or at best you will become a very abrasive person in that other person's eye. I think, why are you pushing me? I don't want this. It's an easy mistake to make because you'd be thinking you're trying to provide very good service Correct. and be annoying the customer. Correct. You know, it is okay for here for us to go tell a client, when I look at this whole thing, I think this is a very big risk, whatever that risk is. It could be from our side or it could be from their side. But this is the way to plug it, and this is going to cost. A lot of times, customers will actually give you that. 
and they are grateful to the fact that you identify the risk. Now that is part of the value of that relationship that the customer is actually expecting. Right. It's a it's a deeper relationship because you have to actually understand why they are trying to do whatever they are tr- doing. That makes a lot of sense. I think my only advice to the new CEO would be to understand that and make sure that the head office expectation is set properly. Well, listen, before we close up, is there is there anything else you want to talk about? Is there anything I should have asked you but forgot? You know, when I look back, what helped me the most was a genuine effort to understand the people here as people. I spent a lot of time reading Japanese history in the beginning. Why do they do what they do? There has to be something to it. If they're doing something, there must be a reason for it. And I think it is important to make that effort to understand why it is like that rather than commenting as to how weird this is. That really helped me to have an honest conversation uh, with uh, customers and even employees. It sounds very much like the advice you were giving for dealing with the customers, trying to understand the bigger context, trying Absolutely. to figure out what's the meaning, the real meaning of this requirement and this project and this activity. I think if somebody is going to come here saying that I'm going to spend three years and put one more tick in my resume, I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. At least not for the services piece. No, it's, it's long-term commitments, long-term relationships. In fact, I keep telling people, if you want to come here, don't come in three years and all of that. So plan on staying 20 years. <laughs> or more. <laughs> no, because I think it takes time. And because it is services, it is all the more important to understand. See, if it is product, you can, you can still depend on some distributors, this, that, and the other to make something happen. But service, you are the product. The human being is the product. And I think that's a very hard piece. Well, and I imagine that's a big part of what makes maintaining that corporate culture so much more important for services than for Absolutely. hardware. Absolutely. Hey, listen... Thank you so much for sitting no, down and talking with me. I hope it was you. very useful, I and I hope uh, your listeners will get something out of this. Uh, they definitely will. And we're back. What stood out most in our conversation with Shiram was his understanding of the importance of commitment in Japan. He and his core team have been at the helm for more than 15 years in Japan, and while they've built up plenty of strong personal relationships during that time, This demonstrates a kind of stability that only the most successful foreign companies can match. You see, most large Japanese enterprises rotate their management through a wide variety of positions every few years. As a result, these firms must rely on their vendors for a lot of their institutional knowledge. The vendor's staff are the ones that have been working on those systems the longest and understand it the best. It's resulted in a hollowing out of the technical expertise at many of these firms, and it's a real problem for them. But this goes a long way to explain the importance Japanese enterprises place on trust, and why a foreign company changing their Japan head every few years will have a very hard time building that trust in Japan. Shiram's point about hiring and retaining the right people is important. The fact that Infosys has kept the same core team here in Japan for more than 15 years is pretty astounding retention. But it's also important 
that early on he decided to counteract the very human tendency of people to hire other people who are just like they are. Understanding this is important for all companies, of course. But when hiring for a Japanese subsidiary, you need to be especially careful, or you might end up with either a team of Japanese who reject the global corporate culture, or a team that will always be out of step with the Japanese market. In any event, it seems Shiram and Infosys are only looking forward to expanding to their next thousand employees in Japan. As promised, let me bring you up to date on my most recent conversation with Shriram about how SaaS plays into our enterprise sales model. The SaaS companies that are succeeding in Japan are not actually changing the model; they're simply doing it more efficiently. For example, successful Japanese SaaS companies are still expected to, and still are. Playing the role of being the client's institutional memory. To do so, however, SaaS companies need to show that they understand best practices, and most important, that they'll still be around in ten years. Now, it hasn't been a completely smooth transition, of course. Many enterprises still demand extensive customization, but smart SaaS startups strongly resist those demands. But the two factors that seem to consistently break in SaaS's favor are: first, enterprises and system integrators alike are having trouble hiring enough developers to build these large projects. Sometimes SaaS is the only practical option for them. Second, and perhaps more important, the SaaS product already exists, and it's already being used by other companies. And more and more often, Japanese companies are starting to question whether they really need all that customization. Data privacy and security concerns, and sometimes those concerns are exaggerated, seem to be the largest sales roadblock today. But that's the sales side. Once you make the sale, SaaS vendors are still held to the Japanese support expectations that Shridam and I talked about. You need to spend more time with your customers. You need to be very careful about rolling out changes or new features without warning. So the B two B SaaS business is booming in Japan. The only losers in this transformation are the systems integrators. There aren't many ways that they can pull a win out of this. Sure, they can do the integration work for SaaS products, but that's one-time work. The real money has always been in the monthly services contracts, and that money is now going to the SaaS companies. But as Shriram and I discussed, large Japanese enterprises—they never really were paying for those services. They were paying for the long-term, and I mean decades-long term, support and institutional knowledge. Once Japan's SaaS vendors prove they can provide that. The Japanese software market will change forever. If you want to talk about selling SaaS in Japan, Shriram and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you I'll respond, and Shriram probably will as well. 
Also, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan has grown not by social media marketing or advertising, but because listeners like you enjoy it and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.